0: Welcome to another edition of The Last Negroes at Harvard. There were 18 of us in the Harvard College class of 1963. We were born in the 1940s and are now 80 years old. In 1959, we were the largest number of Blacks ever admitted to Harvard. We entered Harvard as Negroes but graduated as Blacks and African Americans. Our guest is writer and editor Gal Beckerman. Before moving to the Atlantic, Gal was an editor at the New York Times Book Review for six years. He also served as the opinion editor at the Forward newspaper and a staff editor and writer at the Columbia Journalism Review. His writing has appeared in a number of places over the years, including The Washington Post, The New Republic, and Book He has written a book about the engines of social change and examines why revolutions ignite and then flame out. His book is titled The quiet Before, On the Unexpected Origins of Radical Ideas. I'm joined by 14 of my Harvard classmates.
1: Okay, my name is Ron Blau, class of 1963. Like a lot of these people, I spent most of my life working in television and film, and I'm doing writing, and now more volunteering than paid work, and I'm really looking forward to talking with you and asking a couple of
2: questions. I'm Woodford here in Ann Arbor, Michigan. We have a perfect day. We were up very late last night because my niece was in the Pink Martini singing group, and they uh, had a show, so it was really quite a show. I don't know if you know the Pink Martini, but they were started at Harvard.
3: Yeah, I like them. Yeah. Oh, great. That's good. Yeah.
2: David.
4: Uh, David Offler, also class of 63. Grew up in South America and spent my life basically working for public radio and public television.
0: And uh,
5: Bill. Bill Collins. I live in Aiken, South Carolina, Harvard class of 63, 20 years in the Navy, steaming around the ocean, doing some, later on doing some nuclear and hazardous waste cleanup and now retired from all that stuff sometimes sailor and uh looking forward to this
6: okay marcy i'm in new york city still working uh for the organization called clean air campaign though that name doesn't begin to describe what it has done and still does um, including fighting environmentally damaging boondoggles like the Westway Highway and Hudson River Development Project um, and for better spending priorities. Okay. Yeah.
7: Uh, Hampton House, Harvard 63, uh, former jock, uh, psychotherapist still working.
8: Hi, I'm uh, Jeff Fox, also a class of 63 after after college, worked as a community organizer in South America and in Chicago, and uh, uh, then taught sociology for many years. I'm now writing fiction. I'm in Granada right now, which where, where the temperature is likely to get up to 40 40 centigrade, which is a lot. Um, but anyway, it's very it's lovely to be here. I'm Jay Pastikoff, class of '63. I'm an astronomer. Just finished my, today, I guess, officially,
9: my 50th year of teaching astronomy at Williams College. Oh. And we had uh, uh, several dozens of my uh, astrophysics majors from the last 50 years on a Zoom yesterday that uh, I'll get an archive of. I could send it around. Oh, um, and uh, uh, and I'm going to be 79 tomorrow. So oh, happy wow. birthday. Hey, happy birthday. Oh, you're one of the young
2: ones. You're a wunderkind.
7: adolescent
10: (laughs) great george george jones class of 63 i'm sort of currently feeling like a man without a country right now i'm in oklahoma i spent a couple of weeks before that in atlanta i'm going back to atlanta next week so i don't know when i'll actually get home again
0: (laughs) Uh, okay great and
3: now to our guest uh gal beckerman welcome and thank you and tell us about your book oh man what a fascinating group of people you are (laughs) (laughs) uh, i feel i feel uh i feel like i want to interview each of you and and (laughs) learn and learn more um well my book uh, is called the quiet before uh on the unexpected origins of radical ideas and uh the impetus for writing this book was the feeling that I had over the last 10, 15 years that we're seeing a lot of social movements that seem to sort of burn, burn bright and then burn out very quickly. Uh, And, uh, and I had a suspicion that it has something to do with social media and the way that social media influences how we think, how we interact with each other, and ultimately, you know, how we make change or the possibilities for making change, Um, possibly because it gets us to do things in attention-grabbing and very quick and loud ways and doesn't allow for the kind of deliberation and slow build that it seems movements in the past really depended on. So what I did is I decided to look historically. Uh, I decided to look historically at moments where small groups of people who wanted to change something about the structure of of the reality around them, of the rules that sort of govern our lives. They wanted to change the status quo and uh, what methods of, what means of communication, pre-digital means of communication, help them do that, help them get started, help them, uh, what I call in the book, uh, incubate uh, these radical ideas. And so I went back to uh, letters and the role they played in, before the scientific revolution, uh, and then sort of marched forward and told a series of stories, um, you know, going through, through each, each chapter sort of grabs onto a particular medium. So I start with letters, and I look at petitions and the roles that they played in the 1830s in England uh, to give working people the right to vote. Um, I go on to look at manifestos and how that sort of shaped what became the fascist movement in Italy. Um, and I look at pre-independence uh, Africa and, and sort of the first uh, African-owned newspapers and how they became forums for people to begin to imagine national identity and independence, um, and on and on and on. I could go through all the examples, but the, the book is basically, uh, half of it is this sort of historical work of excavating these moments um, where people came together through a medium and, and looking at what those medium what 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 they provided people that that we sort of lose out on today and the last half of the book is is then taking it from the last 10 15 years looking at things like the arab spring all the way to black lives matter and how social media's were doing a poorer job than some of these earlier forms of communication
2: tell us more about what you you know what your conclusions might be here.
3: yeah well, the conclusion was, uh, you know, in, in the headline, so to speak, is that, you know, movements need a, a small, quiet, deliberative, you know, even a little bit private space where people can sort of bring their heads together and work out strategy, work out tactics, uh, iron out ideology um, or organizational structure, do the kind of hard work that, you um, that used to be baked in a little bit because you know when you when it took time to organize a protest march, let's say, uh, all that hard work, all the kind of sweat that went into it, that had a, a kind of a side benefit. The side benefit was that it built solidarity. Um, it allowed people to sort of work out differences. Mm-hmm. Um, but the fact that today we can sort of leap over all of that—that that we have these communication, these these forms of communication that allow us to to Reach such size and scale so quickly, um, we lose out on that quiet space, on you know that quiet before, on that on on those uh, environments uh, where people can actually take time to slowly, you know, egg one another on, argue, debate with one another, imagine even in in sort of big ways um, how they might want the future to be different. Right.
8: Um, yeah.
1: Um... You talked about incubating radical ideas, and at this moment, it seems that we more need to intubate some of our radical ideas because, you know, they're kind of on life support in terms of executing them. And uh, (laughs) the blurb for your book says uh, that you offer a recipe for uh, growing radical ideas again. And I was wondering uh, about a recipe not so much for growing, but for implementing. I'm sure you you know, these radical ideas, particularly because, you know, you're, just, you're talking about a relatively slow process, but there are two things which seem in imminent danger, and and they're re- related, one of them being democracy, you know, we could go down the tubes, you know, quite radically in November, and then the climate, which is also, you know, on a fast track to becoming a disaster. Do you have anything... To offer for that, <laughs>
3: if I had if I had immediate answers to those questions, I would <laughs> uh, I wouldn't be here. I'd be uh, running running trying to run something. I, I will say though that one of the things that's become clear to me, especially actually even since the book has come out, is that a lot of these sort of you know the the progressives the progressive ideas and that's sort of what the book is filled with too. Um, one of the problems I see is that we don't on the progressive side on the on the, we don't think of ourselves as as insurgents. you know we don't think of ourselves as fighting a political fight. We think that the ideas that we have are so self-evident and that 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 just sort of yelling them loudly mm. enough um, will make will change people's minds. And you can look at a bunch of different issues. I mean, you know from gun control to the abortion <laughs> debate where, where the where the side that that has you know that might not actually have a a, a, a you know a, a majority support for their ideas do think of themselves as insurgents and do use uh, much more sort of um, deliberate quiet um, political tactics to get to where they want to go. Um, but I think this is another realm in which. Um, the, the the sort of metabolism of social media, I, I don't think that's like the one evil, but I do think that there's a lot to be said about the way that it sort of infected our minds, even those of us who don't, you know, use social media, uh, thinking in terms of slogans, or thinking in terms of, uh, you know, speech acts that are like emotionally provoking, but don't actually use things like leverage or lobbying or, you know, or, or do that sort of quiet hidden non-performative work that I do think a lot of the more, uh, you know, kind of the right wing world understands it needs to use to get it, to get done what it wants to get done.
8: Mm-hmm. That sounds right.
0: Why, why do you think the right wing has such that has such an advantage? And what do you mean by thinking like an insurgent? Tell me a little bit more about that.
3: Well, it's not, I think to think like an insurgent is to not assume that you have the hearts and minds of every single person that you need to get, to get done what you want to get done. You know, so you, you need to convince, you need to bring people along, you need to sort of keep refining your message, your ideas, your tactics to to, to widen the scope of people who are on your side of a particular issue. And I think often with some of the issues that the progressive or left side cares the most about, um, it just feels like, you know, there's a sense of this is morally right. It's morally right. And every human being should understand this at some fundamental level. Uh, But just exclaiming that without thinking uh, about how to actually make the changes concrete that you mm-hmm. that they want to get done uh i think is 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 not enough um it can convince you in a moment you know if you, you see a when you see a hashtag that goes viral right you know this is activists young activists you know like a hashtag will go viral lots of people are sharing this three word slogan you know uh and and maybe that means that minds are being changed but that feels like very sort of w- the work of of performance you know it's it's sort of something that feels emotionally satisfying in the moment but doesn't get the job done
10: mm-hmm. oh so, so what about the january 6 hearings is that at least sort of an on the edge of that sort of the sort of insurgency that you're talking about
3: i think so in the sense that i mean i'm just thinking this through you know but i i what I what I like about about them is that it's building a narrative. It's building a narrative slowly and deliberately, and in a way that's trying to convince people to see a certain, uh, to, to gain a certain understanding of those events that you know, and not sort of taking it for granted that that you know everyone thinks Donald Trump is horrible, and that's all we need to say to you know to 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 end, you know to to make the case.
0: Well, do you you mentioned I think in the book Occupy Wall Street. I mean, is that an example of a movement that just petered out, and what happened with that?
3: I think it opinion? is. I mean, I think I think it's a movement that was uh, was one of these that 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 had a very compelling. Um, Three words, you know, that 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 it that it that it that it, that, it, that it infused the culture with for a time, and that I think is, you know, it it had sort of long term effects in its way. Um, to think of the ninety nine percent, you know, that, that 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 notion, that concept, um, was was brilliant in its way, you know, um, but but it but there were actually real. Uh, legislative changes that, that that group, when you started to drill down, that they wanted to make, you know, um, to 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 make, you know, that that, that they never got to make, um, because uh, because they were a little bit too focused on this sort of immediate um, goal of just, you know, getting that that message out there um, without thinking through some of the the follow through. Yeah,
5: uh, I'll ask you a question. How, what do you how do you explain the persistence of the Trump cult? You know, the big lie and all that stuff. I mean, that is he is a megaphone on social media. Yeah. And uh, he attracted a lot of people by his what I would consider outlandish, immoral slogans. But he attracted a lot of people and they're still with him. And they no. deny deny the uh, the election lie and all that stuff. They think the election was stolen. How do you explain
6: the persistence of that? No, not today. They're not all still with him today. But many of it's us alarm- the testimony of that terrific woman, whose name I've just blotted yeah.
8: out. Right, <laughs> I know.
6: She but- was a real person who people could see and come to trust, Um, a Trump supporter would have trusted her because she had been a Trump supporter. Um, And some people, all kinds of people became shocked at who he really was, namely a guy who would do what she um, recounted him doing.
3: One of the reasons why I talk about sort of social media as having a a kind of a metabolism that a lot of society and culture has sort of taken on is Donald Trump is like exhibit A because he seems like a politician who was born on social media. He understood in some deep way sort of what that particular communication medium wants. It wants you to be uh, categorical it wants you to be loud. It wants you to make bombastic comments that's going to turn everybody's attention in your direction, uh, and um, and and he he got it. He understood that that's how it works, and it worked for him. And so here you have a politics that's become shaped by somebody who uh, who, who who very much is a product of that. Um, of that form of communication. Uh, and and we're, we've all sort of seen the the implications of, of, of that. Um, so I so I think to me it's a lesson of understanding the dominant medium in a society at a given moment. Um, that it tells us a lot about um, about about the the degree of possibilities that that that, that exist at any given time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Spencer.
9: Yes, I love this. Uh, I'm thoroughly, Mr. Beckerman, uh, agree with you. Uh, uh, And uh, I would start with Gutenberg and its relationship to the Reformation. Uh, Every major increase in media has benefited uh, those who took advantage of it to jump to David Walker and Walker's appeal by abusing the press to. and also all the way down, okay? So if you get to uh, the situation of media today, uh, that uh, it is the fact that one of the things that you're right about is novel uh, about the new uh, electronic media is the ability to uh, uh, inject theater into the situation. So it's not about logic, it's about theater. And it's reaching to emotions to, that convince that are not logical. And so, uh, but they're powerful. And uh, the other thing is, is that, as my fellows here know, uh, remember the thing of how many, how many dollars does it take to switch a person from Colgate to Crest? You know, what are looking at Madison Avenue and the role about the modern psychology and marrying that to media. That was the brilliant thing of the Republican party all the way through. And they have used it masterfully. And the last thing I'd say is that, well, why isn't everybody else doing it? Culturally, when people get into power in a culture, they become uh, reticent to change of any type. They're doing well, they wanna keep it going. I call it cultural resistivity. And they, and they are part of the resistance to change. Uh, you know uh, the black movement, the women's movement, the gay movement, and all four are are insurgent movements. And so we are able to get all everything that you mentioned. So I'll just stop because I'm completely. I turned this on. I said, I like everything he's saying. It's just <laughs> absolutely what I believe.
3: I was really influenced in this book by there are some sort of mid century media theorists. Uh, Marshall McLuhan is probably the best known one. Uh, medium is the message. We all know that sort of, you know, uh, his is sort of quick. Uh, way of explaining his theories. Neil Postman is another really interesting guy. Um, uh, he wrote a book called "Amusing Ourselves to Death" about the shift about the right about the shift to to television. Which I mean, he was writing in the in the in the 80s, and he felt that that medium was sort of distorting politics and distorting culture because it was making everything so visual. Um, but we're now in a completely we've turned the screw three more times. You know, where uh, like you said, you know, because provoking an emotional response is the sort of coin of the realm on, on social media. Uh, and that's what it needs to be for those companies to make the kind of money that they're making um, because people need to stay on. And we stay on, they've understood something very deep about human psychology, you know, which is like it. it those sort of, of provocations uh, are are very sticky. They, they, they make us want to kind of keep coming back Keep getting rewarded by other, either other people's, uh, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, liking us or giving us thumbs up, uh, or and and it and it 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 really shapes um, it really shapes the contours. Um, it's a, the way another way of thinking about it is every every form of communication is is, is like a container, and there's certain things that can go in the container and certain things that just can't. It's just not meant to contain them, and what I fear is that we are living in a moment where that container uh, holds a certain kind of form of discourse. You know, it's a, it's a of discourse that is like I said, loud, emotionally grabbing, tension, grabbing any, it, any, it, and it leaves out the sort of sitting around a table looking into one another's eyes, arguing, imagining, being able to speak without fear of shame, you know, uh, sharing an idea saying, I agree with you, but look, here's where he's where I'm thinking, you know, where does that happen anymore? Um, where are the spaces where that can exist? And, and my contention in the book is, and this is why I went historically, because I wanted to look at sort of what it meant like, what it looked like before we had these forms of communication, is that it, that stage is so necessary to bringing a new idea into the world. That, you know, for newness to enter, you, you need to have a space where uh, a, a space where sort of freedom opens up to begin to sort of examine uh, an, an idea that hasn't been heard before or a being that hasn't existed before.
8: What about this new, newly popular medium that we are on now, Zoom? That yeah. seems to permit uh, conversation the, closer to what you what you're, what you're describing. It's not the same, yeah. but um, it I, I, I think at least some more deliberative thoughtful debate can occur this way like as, as it does, as it does among us uh, very frequently in and, these
3: sessions. Yeah, totally. And I, I guess I want to say two things. One is that um, I, 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 I don't want the message from this book to be, uh, first of all, that I think we should unplug the internet because I don't think that we can or should um, that there are ways that we can use it. Um, to our benefit, and I think Zoom is a perfect example. There's, you know, small uh, chat groups where people do have real sorts of conversations. A lot of the, I have a chapter in the book on Black Lives Matter, and what was interesting about that chapter was that um, these are activists who really have gone on, a had a learning curve over the last 10 years, you know, and, and seen what happens to their movements. A lot of these were local activists. I looked at one group in Miami and one group in Minneapolis. What happens to their movements during these big moments of, of uh, of attention, you know, during these sort of um, you know like like the summer of 2020, um, like moments in 2015, 16, where suddenly the world Ferguson, well, people, everyone turns in their direction towards their issue. How do you take that and really use it and not get overwhelmed by it? Because a lot of them spoke about this feeling of you know uh, not knowing how to turn that into turn what you could call soft power, right? The kind of narrative. That gets out there into hard power, meaning how do I change the city council? How do I funnel more money from the police mm-hmm. department to social services? Like so, you know, they they talked about a process of learning that Twitter is good for some things, Facebook is good for some things, but. Um, But we also have our small little chat groups where we just we invite people in and there's just like 10 or 15 people. And that's where we talk about strategy. That's where we talk about tactics. um, That's where we sort of dream up the next action that those are separate spaces meant for different Mm -hmm. things. And in the end, that's sort of the big takeaway from my book, you know, is just a sort of self-awareness that each of these is a different tool. And you have to sort of understand the tool that you're picking up and not be seduced by the bullhorn. You know, which is a great tool for certain things, but, but is not, uh, not what you want to use, you know, in, in very many uh, situations.
7: I, I like what you're saying, Spencer, and what you're saying a lot, Gal. And, uh, but <clears throat> I, I think a lot of the newer tools of communication, uh, when we started on the uh, Internet, uh, they tried to keep it fairly pure for, yeah. for a while. And then commercial interests took it over in 10 or 15 or 20 years. And this, 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 this pressure all the time, you know. Like uh, I, uh, I spend a lot of time doing political stuff on Twitter. I don't gain anything but by it besides an ego boost or something. But uh, 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 they, they had a big program yesterday on on how to boost ad revenue on 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 Twitter, and and everything becomes inter, interspersed with. Uh, Uh, making money or making friends or 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 gaining gaining popularity and uh, I think that starts the cumulative avalanche of of deterioration and and a lot of people in business are taught to use the internet that way to uh, utilize it to uh, get more eyeballs and and make more money and and, uh, I, I I don't know how you can sort those things out or if you need to
3: no, I mean, I, I think everything you're saying is true. And, and I, you know, the, something that's, ha- this book took me a long time to write. And one of the things I feel like has happened over the course of working on it is that we have begun to really see, we're not so naive anymore about you know, the fact that these are private companies that run a Facebook or a Twitter, that they have their own interests, um, that they're sort of pushing us towards a certain kind of conversation and, and you know, uh, and, and keeping us away from other types of conversation. Um, and I think when it comes to our personal lives, and even to some extent, when it comes to how those platforms have sort of skewed our democratic institutions right made us much more extreme made us much everything much more uh angry and and divided like we're definitely i think collectively coming to understand that much more clearly um what i wanted is to sort of take that understanding and apply it to this question of how uh how new movements social movements how new ideas how change actually happens Um, and and there, I think we do have a lot of real romantic ideas. We forget the commercial quality of, of, those, of those websites. We think that, I mean, that if you just have a, a hashtag go viral, you know, um, if there's just enough people that share a three word slogan enough that that's how change happens. And it was, it's that that I wanted to sort of puncture a little bit, because I feel like we, we've sort of held on to that you know, idea.
0: Yeah. Uh. Uh. Bill, you had
3: your hand up next. Yeah. Just a couple of
5: comments. I mean, thinking of Black Lives Matter,
0: you know, that came to
5: public attention after the murder of George Floyd, of course. And all these demonstrations all over the place. What the what the um, I'll call them the right wing seizes upon is the slogan "defund the police," and the all the arson that occurred. You know, Portland was burned to the ground, for example, which is ridiculous. It wasn't, of course, but there was violence and there was arson. There was robbery along with not so much by the demonstrators, I think, but by people who took advantage of the disorder, but that's what the opponent sees upon and defund the police is a favorite whipping boy now of the right wing. You know, of course we can't defund the police. We need the police. You know, they what that meant, of course, defund the police was turn the police to a more positive kind of thing. But that isn't what
3: his well, season yeah. was No, I mean, I think defund the police is a sort of perfect example of what I'm talking about. And again, yeah. this, this doesn't come from me. This comes from the, the activists who I spoke with. You know, I want to make it clear that this book was is based on reporting with folks who, who uh, they actually feel frustrated by that slogan um, because it's one that, it de- it definitely uh, provokes an emotional response, right? And and as you put it, it can provoke a very negative emotional response um, for people who believe that there needs to be police reform. It 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 can provoke a very sort of excited like yes response. Let's get rid of the you know police. Um, but when you actually talk to the people who are working on these issues of at lo- at a local level, they they understand this is so much more complex an issue uh, than just. Getting rid of the police. So yeah. uh, I there was one group called the Dream Defenders that I talked to in Miami, and they actually at one of the sort of high moments of of Black Lives Matter activism, decided to do what they called a blackout, which is they 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 deleted their apps, they they went off social media completely because they felt that their activism was being distorted by these this need to sort of gain attention. Uh, this was a time when. You know, they told me you could have mag- magazines would list, you know, who are the most important activists in the country, and it was follower counts on Twitter that they would use yeah. to distinguish it, right? So, so yeah. these folks, they for three months they said we're we're going off, we're going off, and we're just going to go into the neighborhoods and talk that we're supposed to be representing and talk to people. And one of the first things that they found was that, you know, people didn't want to get rid of the police, and these were these were these were activists who were in the circles of people who on Twitter, like this was a popular slogan, and they believed it themselves. They call themselves abolitionists uh, when it comes to the police, and so, um, so they started having conversations. They started talking mm-hmm. to people, and nobody said they were happy with the police. They said, you know, uh, th- there has to be a way to funnel money away from the police department, which gets it without question every year, uh, into social services. So you have. Um, an incident on the street that is somebody who is mentally ill or not, you know, or, or or acting erratically, and you don't get the police to come. You have a social worker come, or you know, the, there has to be a way to sort of shift um, the priorities um, in in cities when it comes to to policing. So that was a deeper, longer conversation, and and opened up a set of solutions that really dig beneath the surface of the, just defund the police. Um, but they had to sort of detach themselves from that sort of performative form of activism to one that is grassroots and organizing and actually quite very much like just the old model of way of doing things um, to arrive at certain solutions that they could then uh, turn into real proposals um, that that felt they would have community support for.
1: Uh, Yeah, I like the idea of, you know, Stay away from the performative, you know, until you have something to perform.
3: Exactly.
1: Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll give an example. I'm just this morning I was on a Zoom gathering. Um, a small group has formed because the gas companies in Massachusetts want to replace all the gas pipes with yellow plastic pipes that will also carry hydrogen. What they want to do is give us an infrastructure that will last for decades so we have to, you know, we can't switch off fossil fuels. Mm. And they're very powerful. And so we wanted to say something about this and try to slow them down because there are a lot of gas leaks to be repaired without replacing the whole system. So we came up, you know, like with a hashtag kind of thing, scary yellow pipes (laughs) But we're saying we don't want to publicize anything until we're ready. And so we met and we're talking with city councilors. We're developing, you know, uh, you know, starting Google Docs that we can all edit, you know, using the means. You'll probably get, you know, uh, Canva for graphics that we'll eventually use. Um, I was out shooting yellow pipes this morning as they're installing them on uh, on my, uh, you know, on my iPhone, and I will upload that to Vimeo using these the, these tools, so that anybody can download them and use them in video. So I agree, the the deliberative thing before you, you know, announce yourselves, so that you can really be effective.
3: Yeah, and then the inverse of that is like, what you know, how do you take advantage of those? let's say a scary yellow pipes suddenly blows up and goes viral. You know, how do you know, you know, that that's, that's concrete leverage and pressure you have over uh, the companies. Right. But, but if you haven't done the work to figure out how to take advantage of that leverage of that power, uh, then you just have a very visible moment of a lot of people being angry and sharing their anger and, and you can't translate into something. Yeah. yeah.
2: I think that when the, Black Lives Matter thing started, I always wondered why they didn't say, you know, Black Lives Matter, too, because you're trying to build broader and wider links of people. And I think that if they you you play into the hands of your opponent, if you give them a slogan or uh, that they can Mm -hmm. abuse or or distort in such a way that you lose an opportunity. For the expansion and the coalition building that you want, so uh, Black Lives Matter too. I think would have been a stronger approach. Mm-hmm. The same with uh, defund the police. You know, there there should have been thinking of uh, a slogan and a content that, as as someone has said, you're you're trying to improve the police and clean up the police and yeah. do all those sorts of things. There yeah. should have been some kind of slogans and that conveyed that from the get go. Yeah.
3: But here's my I mean, it's 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 a really it's an it's an interesting and important point. And the, let's do the thought exercise Would a slogan that said, uh, improve and clean up and make the police better work oh. on Twitter. Absolutely not. Or, oh. or Black Lives Matter, too. It's that that's what I worry about is that we, we, you know, Black Lives Matter was born as a movement on these social media platforms, you know, that's where it began to gain its first real attention. And it, and it, and social media sort of did the work that it does, you know, which is it reduces, you know, it reduces and it makes bombastic, you know, it, it, mm-hmm. it it's, that's yeah. what, that's what it's interested in. That's what its bias is as a medium. And then it ends up affecting the whole movement, you know, like, so you, you, you know, you, you sort of lose control of the core, meaning of your message because it just becomes something that is useful to share and to get people riled up, you know, which, yeah. um, uh, yeah. Yeah. But,
2: but they, you know, but there could be such slogans and other things if people, as you said, if in private, in some kind of way, there was a way to craft yeah. the thing that you're really trying to do and, and figure out the wording and, okay. and, and you know, Yeah. Think beforehand, yeah. Plan.
0: Yeah. David Allen, what's up? So
11: let me pose a question building from that. Uh, are these social media platforms the way to bring about real hard power change on a mass scale? If the evidence is that the uh, phenomenon is at best ephemeral and only uh, emotion-based rather than logic, You gave the example of your miami group who absented themselves for three months
3: yeah i i think it had and this is where i'm i I will give a a probably more nuanced answer which is um i think they have their role to play i wouldn't i wouldn't discount the fact that you know what if social media is a bullhorn right if it's given us all these very powerful bullhorns it's sort of an incredible thing in the course of human history that we now each of us have this opportunity to to go and reach so many people you know and if we talk about mm-hmm. a communication medium as a form of power uh it's distributed that power in an incredible way um but 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 <laughs> i i think we've become a little bit too seduced by this form of communication we think that it's everything uh when no. it's not everything it's one thing and and you know this might be too hard to take away, but I I, I don't think we should throw it away. Um, I I think it definitely has a role to play in a movement. It just has to have uh, it's 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 right role. It has to have a it has to have a place alongside other uh, forms of right. of ga- of gathering and communicating. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I apologize
11: for having come in late, but I was lucky enough to hear you describe the importance of deliberative conversation and small groups like this to birth new ideas. Uh, It sounds to me as if perhaps uh, the synthesis here is that uh, maybe Zoom or real small groups physically are the way that new ideas get formed into something potentially strong. I think the real question is, how do you aggregate size? Somebody already brought that up. I think John brought that up. Uh, almost certainly, uh, these social media platforms might play a role. It's not clear to me that we have got our handle yet on how to do the individual, as it were, and the mass, certainly mm-hmm. in our thinking about this. And, of course, activists across ages have faced this, so whom
3: Cool. Yeah. That's a wonderful book on this question. Yeah. Anyway, thanks. No, I think it's a. I think that issue of you know here's where capitalism comes into play again because you know there is always a desire for scale. You know, like there's not. Um, you know, people have tried. People in Silicon Valley even have tried to create social media platforms that are more about um, small groups of people talking to each other. You know, but there always is a need for. Uh, more connection and keeping you on longer and keeping you. I mean, the other thing we didn't talk about is focus—the ability to have a communication medium that allows you to focus and not be sort of like ping-ponged among a hundred different things, uh, which is sort of how we feel when we're online. And there's a reason for that. It's like the more we, the more we're kept, the more things are refreshed constantly uh, in terms of what's in front of our eyes. The more we're likely to sort of stay glued. Um, so. You know, can can there be a medium that actually um, allows for that kind of focus and patience and deliberation? Um, I, the problem is, you know, can you do that and make money? You know, building it or do we? <laughs> do you mm-hmm. abandon that model? Is that as, you know, uh, the fact that we should even have to think in those terms maybe is is wrong? Um, mm-hmm. Maybe there needs to be. If this is our public square, if social media is our public square, maybe it needs to be truly public. Maybe there has to be some sort of form of social media that is um, a public utility, that isn't, that isn't something that's completely driven by uh, a profit margin. Mm-hmm. I think you're exactly right. Okay.
4: David, David Othman. Well, I'm, I'm struck by uh, the contrast between what we've been talking about, defund the police and things like that, and the January 6th, hearings that we've been watching which yeah. are very deliberative extraordinarily well planned out okay. and scripted okay. yeah. and, and there it's it's a different approach and yet we we're, we're all glued to them and and we don't know quite where it's going to come out and what the slogan is going to be if there is one but it's a it's a it's a very different approach to to a very important Topic in our in our civilization in
0: our you know, you know they've already come out with uh, ketchup gate <laughs> 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 so the slogans are beginning. <laughs> what do you think, Al? <laughs>
4: I like it. <laughs> um,
3: no, I think you're right. I mean, look, I'm wrapping my head around it in real time as you all are, but I, I do think there is something very strong about the way that they're going about making this case, and. Uh, and it feels like it's a story that they're building in a deliberate, slow, methodical way. Yep. But um, but even the way they're structuring these individual uh, sessions, you know, where there's always like some bombshell at the end, you mm-hmm. know, like um, they're they're, you know, it's 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 interesting. It's sort of at the one hand, I'm thinking out loud here. They're sort of holding at bay, you know, the need to sort of be too. Uh, poking or emotionally provoke, provoking, you know, in the way that I've been talking about social media, but they, but they do understand narrative. They understand that they have to tell a story right. and build it through evidence. Yeah, yeah,
4: yeah. No, I, I, as, as I said, I, I've been involved with television in the production side, and you're always telling stories. That's if you don't have a story to tell, nobody's going to watch it. Yeah. And uh, and that is, they have a story, and each session is a story. Mm-hmm. And, and somebody is very smartly figuring out how to how to how to craft each each two hour basically two hour session that they have. Two hours is a long time, yeah, yeah. It is, it is. And yet they keep your attention, and it's very well done.
1: Yeah, George. Didn't they hire somebody from ABC to? Yeah, somebody from ABC. I suspect they have. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. it's directly yeah. television. I,
4: I, I wish it had been from public television, but ABC has a better. <laughs> ABC gets more <laughs> <the> <laughs> viewers. A track record with, with cliffhangers.
10: So uh, first a comment and a question. David's comment just sort of reminded me that we tend to think about social media in terms of Facebook and Snapchat, Instagram, Twitter, et cetera. But commercial television is still a very powerful form of Mm -hmm. social media. Mm -hmm. Even Mm -hmm. though it's not interactive in the same way as these other forms are, it still has a very significant impact. And I think we sometimes miss that. Mm -hmm. My question, Gal, is, and I haven't read your book yet, so this answer may be in there. Are there examples of a measurable impact of social media on policy or practice
3: um it, this sort of sort of large platform social media where you're where you're, I I think it's more accurate when I I mean I'm just thinking through your the an, the right answer to your question I think that there are definitely there's definitely a sense that there are narratives that enter and say it takes something like me too Right, um, the Me Too movement, where you see this sort of immediate uh, burst of um, men being taken down um, in various fields uh, in a sort of a, a way that that is that you know over a short period of time, it's almost like like a fever takes over, right? Um, but so that's one kind of effectiveness, right? There's almost like, I mean, those aren't, there, I wouldn't call those necessarily symbolic wins, but there is something almost symbolic about them because you're not changing laws uh, about sexual harassment, let's say. Um, you're just sort of um, making it clear through uh, through the taking down, the firing of, of, of various individuals. Um, it's sort of performative in a certain kind of way. Um, and you could ask, the, I guess I would ask the question back, which is like, is that effectiveness, you know, is it effectiveness um, after a black lives matter? If there's certain, you know, if statues are, are taken down, it is a certain kind of effectiveness. There's a lot of power to those symbolic wins, but then you can ask how far does that go? Does it change laws? Uh, does it change something deep about the culture? Um, and, and that's where I'm, that's what I'm sort of struggling and grappling with is like how sustainable these moments are of, of change that seem to bubble up Mm -hmm. on on social media.
5: Yeah. I'm going to go back a little bit. Jesus gathered 12 apostles (laughs) and he lived with them for three years and told them stories. That's how he preached. Yep. Told them stories. The stories are memorable. I mean, goodness, we remember those stories 2000 years later. And then, of course, he was crucified, died and rose from the dead. And his apostles went out and spread the word individually, face to face, one on one, you know, a few at a time. And it's taken 2000 years, but permeated most of the much of the world. And we're still trying to figure out how to follow Jesus. Those of us who are Christians. And if we did a better job of it, I think we'd have a better society. I think there's always a temptation, of course, a problem. Of, of seizing upon a label like Christian and perverting it and using it for your own ends. And that applies to many things.
3: Well, I love, I mean, I, I, I think the, the, the growth, the birth and growth of Christianity uh, is a sort of great example of, kind of thing I'm talking about. Um, and, you know, I've, I've been struck myself at many moments, uh, promoting this book, thinking about how to present this book that actually what I'm saying is quite obvious, obvious in the way that, you know, of course, a religion would be that would take over the world would be born in that way among a small group of people who begin to disseminate a message, you know, uh, qu- quietly over a long period of time, you know, that, that there is something obvious about it. And I think, uh, the reason it still feels important to say it or to sort of show it, in the way I'm trying to do in this book, is because it's something that I feel we're we're sort of losing a sense of the value of that, of that smallness and that quiet and that privacy and that and that slow deliberateness. Um, and uh, and yeah, I, I I but I I appreciate your I appreciate your 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 thinking about it in those terms,
0: uh, Marcy. <laughs>
6: Um, it, it, the conversation so far has assumed we'll have plenty of electric power for all of our gadgets <laughs> and all of our communications, um, mm. and no glitches. And um, I think um, it would be a mistake to ignore um, the importance of small groups of people talking to people, just as Phil said. And then 12 apostles go out. And then in the Middle Ages, people go on pilgrimages in big groups, which they love doing. It's like a demonstration today. Um, But they talk to each other and communicate and spread the word. And um, all the forms of doing that, I think, are really important. And I think if you had to choose one, electronic and Zoom, Zooms which are subject to surveillance and uh, and a state that doesn't want there to be private groups of six to 12 people chatting with each other and fomenting revolution. Um, it, Different forms of getting together and spreading the word, I think, are important. And and, uh, the one thing that gives me hope, if COVID would ever end, is that um, the value of person-to-person, in-person, getting together and crafting strategy, um, as I'm sure the guys and the, and the women on the um, January 6th committee are doing in person. Mm -hmm. They're, they're not chatting on the phone. Even they're certainly not doing zooms. They're crafting their strategy um, in person, in private places and taking advantage of the forms of communication we have now, which are varied, but they're not limiting themselves to things that won't necessarily always work, especially with climate change.
3: Yeah, I was, I was gonna, I'm, and I'm curious for your thoughts on this, you know, but one of the things I've thought about when it comes to climate change is, like, we need a space, it seems, where we can imagine uh, a new story that we can tell about climate change that might convince more people to understand its seriousness. It seems like that is one of the challenges. And, and you know, how do you develop that story? How do you, how where do you have the workshop that, that allows you to actually uh, talk among the people who are, you know, activists who care to say, how do we go out and, you know, not just throw facts and figures at people because they don't really seem to care about that. You know, they don't seem to care about the 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 reality of the changing weather that they see around them. You know, how do we actually tell this story in a different way? Um, the, the, you know, the, there has to be a place to do that.
6: Mother Nature will be telling the story yeah. more and more <laughs> and more. <laughs> yeah,
1: so and, there, and there are a lot of people working on just that. Yeah. I mean... Yeah there you know there's a yale group of climate change communication there are groups that will help you communicate and 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 provide resources for climate stories i think it's not that the people associated with the climate movement are communicating badly it's that it's an unusually tough problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's what I
3: mean to say is that it's, that it's, it seems like a storytelling problem as much as anything else. Yes. But,
1: and, and a lot of things we've been talking about involve storytelling, like they stole the election, stop the steal. You know, that's a great pitch document, you know, for, you know, do you know what I mean? That, that is great storytelling. And also the element of time, like Mitch McConnell has, you know, worked for decades to get the Supreme Court to be where he wants it. Uh, Jane Mayer has the book Dark Money, yeah. and one of the chapters is on Citizens United. I mean, the, the patience that the right wing has yeah. had to do things that take decades is, you know, incredible, but storytelling plus time.
0: Let's go with Spencer. And then, uh, Gal, could you tell us uh, what your how your book is doing, and uh, what you're working on next. And uh, but let's uh, go to Spencer. What do you have?
11: Okay, uh,
9: nice segue because time was what I was going to raise my hand on. Uh, mm-hmm. They were we we're running out of time, and so when this came up with the with the uh, with your parable um, your parable book <laughs> about Jesus and and the movement, we don't have time uh, anymore. Uh, to take uh, previously successful routes. So very quickly, because we're running out of time, I'll my co- uh, final statement was that what, what I see here is a combination. We have to learn how to use these combinations because staying power comes with conviction with in-person stuff but immediate reaction comes with the, you know, the new types of uh, electronic media. So it's crafting the combination of all these marvelous forms of communication. But the key element I think is that just what uh, Marcy is saying and so forth, we're running out of time. We've, yeah. we've got to solve this uh, 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 climate uh, situation and create a new society very quickly.
3: Yeah. Amen uh how's how's the book the book is doing well i mean i you know it's been it's been reviewed in all the places i would like for it to be reviewed people seem to see it's uh it's a you know uh without turning you all off from going and buying the book it's a it's a strange sort of book you know because i i i put a lot of i actually i'm asking the reader to do the thing that i want us all to be doing which is it's 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 a slow it's a it's a deliberative process of you know, there's a series of stories that I tell in this book. I don't hold your hand too much. You know, I set out my thesis in the beginning and in an introduction, and then you make your way through a series of stories. You know, uh, six of them are historical, and then there's sort of an interlude that sends you into the very early days of the internet, and then there's four stories that take you through Arab Spring, through the build-up to Charlottesville, and uh, in in, in uh, 2017. Uh, Covid, Black Lives Matter, and then and then we're to a conclusion. So you, so you, the reader, sort of has to have to pick up, has to begin to connect the dots um, in, in terms of the argument that I'm trying to make here that we've been talking about in such a great way for the last hour. So you know, um, I, I think readers it's are are slowly uh, coming to it and and seem to be getting a lot out of it, which is very very gratifying to me. And what are you on to next? Oh don't man, um, I don't. I don't really know yet. I've got a few different ideas bubbling up. Um, I just took a new job. I moved. I was at the New York Times Book Review for for six years uh, as an editor there, and I just moved over to the Atlantic uh, <laughs> Magazine, um, and they hired me here to expand their book section to sort of create a um, more robust and and daily uh, you know uh, book section. So um, so that just started for me a few months ago. So I'm busy. Sort of building something from scratch, which is oh, a lot.
0: Great, of fun. great, yeah. great. Well, thank great you so much that. for coming on, then. I mean it was really great. And uh, uh, yes, guys. This has been yeah, terrific. Yeah. The book, and we're all going to go out and buy it. That uh, wonderful,
3: great. wonderful questions, such thoughtfulness. And like I said, I would, I'd love to talk to each of you in person and learn more well,
0: about you. Well, why don't we
1: why don't we run for another hour? <laughs> <laughs>
3: right. well, or, or or invite you
0: back. <laughs> and we'll invite you back, definitely. Yeah. Well, thank you, <laughs> thanks everybody, and we'll say thank you, guys. bye-bye. Thank you. Uh, Bye. I, thanks, Gal. Thanks, thanks, that was writer-editor Gal Beckerman. His book is titled *The Quiet Before*, on the unexpected origins of radical ideas. And that's it for this episode of *The Last Negroes at Harvard*. I'm Kent Garrett. You can hear more episodes on our podcast. Which you can find on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, or from wherever you get your podcasts. Plus, you can read all about us in the book, The Last Negroes at Harvard.